You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Lee Wong. Well, hey tribe, today we embark on a difficult journey through three sections of John's account about Jesus. And because we're gonna journey through three sections, in just a few moments, I'm gonna ask you to do two things. First, I'll ask you to put on your thinking caps. Today's teaching is necessarily dense, so dense that you may find it helpful to watch or listen a second time. And secondly, if you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to imagine erasing the chapter numbers and the section headings. And here's why I want us to do those two things. The original manuscript of John's account was recorded in Greek. And fun fact, in the Greek manuscripts, there are no chapter numbers, section headings, or verse addresses. Actually, there isn't even any punctuation or spaces between the Greek letters. They all run together. And as such, it's easier to see how John had connected multiple narratives together to communicate a single flow of thought, a singular idea. And to be clear, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with our English scriptures. You don't need to throw out your Bibles. But what I am saying is the way our scriptures have been broken up for us, it can unintentionally create mental literary barriers. The prescribed chapter numbers and section headings can force us to compartmentalize. We can zero in on individual narratives only and miss the beauty of John's uninterrupted thought and bigger themes. And to miss the bigger picture is a huge tragedy for us, especially as we seek to better recognize who Jesus is, what he's all about. Now, I believe if we put on our thinking caps and take an imaginary eraser to those chapter and section headings, whether you are a longtime Bible reader, a spiritual investigator, a skeptic, or an atheist, I believe you will have a clearer understanding of who Jesus is and what he's all about. I believe you will have a greater appreciation for the richness and the depth of what John recorded. And more importantly than that, I believe you and I will have a foundation, a firm foundation of beliefs to navigate these definitively divided times. And any time life gets difficult for that matter. Well, all right, you ready to do this? Everyone go ahead, put on your thinking caps, get focused. And if you have your Bibles open, take your imaginary eraser to the chapter and section headings. And if you invite the Holy Spirit to teach you something new today, would you just say with me, amen. Oh, come on, City Tribe, I can't hear you. If you invite the Holy Spirit to teach you something new today, say with me, amen. Amen. So what is that interconnected, uninterrupted thought that John wanted you and me to better recognize? Well, John's flow of thought began when he described Jesus's arrival at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. For Jews like Jesus, the temple was considered the sacred dwelling place for God's spirit. And so Jesus was outraged when he saw God's house had been turned into a sort of pulga, a flea market. He passionately and publicly protested this perversion the religious authorities had permitted. Jesus quickly wove a whip and he cracked it and drove out all the vendors from the courtyard. He poured out the money changers' coins and he flipped over their tables. And John recorded 
that having seen this, Jesus's disciples were reminded of a prophecy about a king of kings. And if you're watching, I want you to read out loud with me that prophecy. It's displayed on your screen. It read, zeal for your house will consume me. John wanted you and me to know that Jesus was consumed with zeal. He had a burning hot preference for honoring the place where God's spirit dwelt. He was infuriated. The religious leaders had monetized people's desire to commune with God. And y'all, let me just say, we at City Tribe are absolutely mindful about this. You can rest assured we do not and will not seek to profit off of your worship experience. But the religious authorities at that temple, having their economic engine disrupted and their godliness challenged, they asserted themselves. They bowed up to Jesus, demanding to know his credentials, to which Jesus said to them, here are my credentials. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And that was all the authorities needed to hear. It had taken 46 years to build up the temple to where it was. There was no way anyone could build it up in three days or even three years for that matter. So surely this Jesus guy, he was just another attention-seeking agitator whose following would soon wane like with so many others. But John provided you and me this commentary. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Meaning Jesus cryptically predicted that he'd die and three days later be resurrected. Now, end that temple scene. John soon after transitioned to a second, though interconnected narrative. And perhaps it was seeing Jesus's zeal during that temple protest. Perhaps it was seeing or hearing about the many miracles Jesus performed. But while Jesus was in Jerusalem, he gained a most unlikely, unexpected fan. Here's what happened. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night. Nicodemus, whose name literally means conqueror of people, was just that. As a Pharisee, he was an aristocrat, a wealthy and influential figure committed to religious and national purity. He was also a ruler meaning he held a seat on the Jewish Supreme Court. In order to have attained such a status, he had to have been tall and look intimidating. He had to have been popular and advanced in age. He had to have been a scholar and needed to speak several foreign languages like Greek and Latin. He had to have served as a local judge and then eventually in two district level judicial positions. Few people could have ever attained to such a status as Pharisee and ruler like Nicodemus had. And this is what made him a most unlikely fan of Jesus. It's what makes what John recorded next so outrageous that with one word, Nicodemus would have lost all credibility with his fellow rulers. He said to Jesus, Rabbi. Nicodemus called Jesus a guy half his age with no accomplishments and someone considered an agitator. He called him rabbi, meaning teacher. Can you picture any member of today's US Supreme Court addressing me as their teacher? Yeah, I can't picture that 
either. Those of you who've worked with someone half your age know how huge a pill it would have been for Nicodemus to have swallowed. That's especially true for ancient Jewish culture. Gray-haired and aged men had superiority, so no well-accomplished middle-aged men like Nicodemus would seek out someone half his age to learn from him. And actually, every time the term rabbi is recorded in the New Testament, it's always from one of Jesus's disciples. And so Nicodemus calling Jesus rabbi, it reveals to us so much about his character. And remember from week one, when his fellow rulers debated arresting Jesus, we saw that Nicodemus defended Jesus, asking them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and recognizes what he's doing, does it? And so it's clear to see. Nicodemus, unlike many of his peers, didn't hang his hat on authority and accomplishments. He was among the honorable, humble rulers who suspended their judgment to listen to and learn from others. And it's reasonable to think that he too was consumed with a similar zeal for God that Jesus displayed. And so Jesus's zealous temple protest and the signs that he had performed and the teachings that he gave, they intrigued Nicodemus who went on to say, we know you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with him. Translation, Jesus, confirm for me, you're the zealous king that our scriptures testify about. Tell me you're the king who will finally overthrow the kingdoms of this world so our nation can be great again. And what I love about Jesus, a masterful rabbi, is he rarely responded directly to the subject at hand. He most often refocused the conversation to the heart of the matter and to what consumed him to what he wanted you and me to be consumed by. And his response to Nicodemus was no different. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, most assuredly, most assuredly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, that is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now it's as if Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're consumed with superficial things. You're consumed with earthly matters. If you want to truly be consumed with what consumes God, if you want to better recognize what God is all about, you have to first be born from above. Now, according to Jesus, to so much as perceive God's presence and activity in our world, you and I have to be born from above. And if you're wondering what that meant, Nicodemus did too. He asked, how can anyone be born when he's old? Like, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? I mean, Jesus, I want to better recognize God's presence and activity in the world. How can I be born from above? To which Jesus continued his teaching, truly, truly, most assuredly, most assuredly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, if you want to perceive God's presence and eventually enter into his kingdom too, you must experience a rebirth from above through water and spirit. Now, 
what exactly did Jesus mean by born of water and spirit? Well, some teachers associate being born of water with the amniotic sac in which a human baby develops. And so those teachers would say that born of water was Jesus's way of describing the human birth experience. Other teachers would say the phrase born of water refers to water baptism. And so they teach that you and I must be baptized in water to perceive and eventually enter into God's kingdom. And I can totally understand how folks arrive at those conclusions, but you and I, we got to remember certain circumstances surrounding this conversation. We've got to remember the context. Both Nicodemus and Jesus were two individuals well-versed with the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. And given their conversation concerning the arrival of the zealous king and his kingdom to come, when Jesus mentioned being born of water, Nicodemus would have mentally searched the scriptures that he had internalized over all those years. His memory would have retrieved what God had said through the prophet Ezekiel. Now, pay attention to what God associated with water. He said, I will also sprinkle clean what? Water on you and you will be clean and I will give you a new heart and put a new what? Spirit within you. I will place my spirit within you. Now, did you catch what God through the prophet Ezekiel associated with water? God connected being cleansed with water to being made new by having his spirit put within you. And so in Nicodemus's and Jesus's minds, the concept for water was a reference to being made new by God's spirit. And we see this idea reinforced as John's uninterrupted thought continued through the next section. Jesus said, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him. And again, John clarified for his readers what Jesus meant by having streams of living water flow from within. He wrote, Jesus said this about the spirit. So based on what Ezekiel and John wrote, you and I can be sure that born of water wasn't about the amniotic sac. It wasn't about needing to be baptized. No, Jesus's statement to Nicodemus about being born of water is better translated. Unless one is made new by the spirit, indeed the spirit, he cannot enter the realm where God presides. And John wanted to make sure this made sense to you and to me, because continuing his flow of thought in the very next narrative, he recorded Jesus say, God is spirit. Now, are you yet seeing how John chapters two, three, and four are one long uninterrupted thought? Hopefully you're able to see how these three narratives are interconnected and are better understood when they're read together. Now, what exactly does it mean that God is spirit? Jesus described it like this. The wind blows wherever it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Jesus used our understanding of the earthly element wind to describe God's heavenly spirit. 
And this concept wouldn't have been anything new for Nicodemus. All throughout the Old Testament, the concept for God's spirit is likened to a breath or a breeze. Like wind, God is a force you can't see with physical eyes, but whose impact you can recognize and feel. And remember, in week one of this series, we also learned that God is a divine wisdom and power that gives life. And so God's spirit is an invisible yet impactful intelligence, an invisible person that gives life to the fool. Jesus wanted Nicodemus and John wanted you and me to know God's spirit is our invisible king. And trust me, I know how illogical and unscientific all of this sounds to talk about an invisible king. I know how weird and nutso it is to say that you need to be made new by a spiritual breath or a supernatural breeze. And you're not alone thinking this is some absurd teaching because even Nicodemus sought further clarity from Jesus. He asked yet another question. How can these things be? Jesus, this is wild. How can I be persuaded this is true? Jesus, why should I accept what you're telling me? Now to those who struggle with faith, because you can't reconcile why certain things are or how certain things can be, Let Nicodemus be an example for you as he's been for me. Take to Jesus whatever questions you have. There is no question too foolish or too hard or too offensive for Jesus. In fact, as a rabbi, Jesus expects you and me to ask him hard questions. It was part of the rabbinical teaching method. So just a little peek into my personal prayer life. I ask a ton of questions. And whenever I write sermons, I never even start an outline without spending several days asking questions. So take to Jesus whatever questions you have. And my hope for us is that we'd not be a tribe that emphasizes having all the answers, but that we'd be a tribe of humble, lifelong learners like Nicodemus who emphasized asking Jesus questions. Now back to Nicodemus's question. How do we really know God is spirit? Like, why should we accept that we need to be born of spirit? Jesus explained how and why in a way that might be foreign to us, but Nicodemus should have understood. He referenced several Old Testament scriptures to answer Nicodemus's question. And right now I'm gonna unpack just two of those references. It's gonna get a little confusing for just a few minutes, but I promise I'll tie a bow on it all at the end. So let's just refocus our thinking hats and y'all stay with me. Here's how Jesus answered Nicodemus's question. How can these things be? He said, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. Now the son of man was Jesus's favorite reference for himself. It was a title for the zealous king whose arrival Nicodemus and every Jew longingly awaited. Listen to how this king, the son of man, was described. Suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that is, he entered the realm where God presides, and he was escorted before him, meaning the son of man ascended into heaven. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. 
So Jesus claimed, like the Son of Man described in the Old Testament, he would ascend to heaven. That is, he will return to the realm where God's eternal spirit presides. Now, hold that thought because Jesus threw in another Old Testament reference to answer Nicodemus. He referenced a famous story concerning the most revered Jewish prophet, Moses. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And as that story goes, around 1300 BC, Jesus's and Nicodemus's ancestors were dying from poisonous snakes. Moses, their prophet, pleaded with God to save the people. And so God gave Moses some very peculiar, though specific instructions. Here's what happened. Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. And whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. When he looked, he lived. And so in the same way Moses lifted up a serpent to keep alive people, Jesus said he too was going to be lifted up. And when you think of Moses mounting a snake on a pole and Jesus being lifted up, what imagery comes to mind? Perhaps you picture in your mind the image of Jesus mounted on a Roman cross. And if you pictured that, yes, that's right. That's certainly part of what Jesus alluded to. But to understand fully what Jesus meant and to accurately answer Nicodemus's question. Let's recap all we've learned thus far. Y'all ready? Here's what we've learned. Like Moses lifted up a serpent on a pole so people could continue to live, Jesus said he too had to be lifted up. And we learned that the son of man, the long awaited God King had power to do what? To ascend to heaven above. And we learned that God is what? Spirit an invisible king that gives life to the full. And bringing clarity to all of this is Jesus's prediction that John previously recorded. We saw this earlier. Destroy this temple that is his body and I will raise it up in three days. Now, if you feel lost or overwhelmed right now, don't get frustrated. Here's where we tie a bow on all of this. So check back in with me, all right? Jesus's point referencing these Old Testament scriptures was to say something like this. Nicodemus, you ask, how can these things be? Well, here's how. My body is going to be destroyed and lifted up on a cross. But three days later, I will prove I have everlasting dominion over all things. By the power of God's spirit, I will be raised to life and ascend back to heaven. And when this happens, Nicodemus, you will recognize God is spirit and that you must be born from above. And here's what this means for you and me today. It means while you and I can have all sorts of questions about faith and certain events in the Bible, there is just one signature question you and I need to be absolutely convinced about. And it's not whether or not Jesus existed, that's already been validated. Every credible historian alive in our world today will tell you Jesus in fact lived and was crucified. So the single most important question you and I need to answer in our lifetime is this. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The single most important question you and I need to answer in our lifetime is did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he didn't, 
And the scriptures are no different than mythology. You and I are wasting our time today. Every time you give to City Tribe to have us continue teaching, you're wasting your money. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, it proves everything he said to Nicodemus was true. And the implications of that are huge for you and they're huge for me. And my hope is you'll be consumed by this question until you arrive at a convincing conclusion of your own. But as food for thought, here's one reason why I'm persuaded Jesus rose from the dead. In his book, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus, professor of ancient history, John Dixon, presents how the earliest known creed, which is a collection of easy to remember beliefs, the earliest known creed taught in Jesus-centered communities reads, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, historical records show that this creed took widespread root around 34 AD, just months after Jesus's crucifixion. For investigative historians like John Dixon, the fact that these beliefs about Jesus's resurrection are so unique and were so quickly adopted and were so widespread, it suggests that these beliefs weren't mere legends. It suggests that countless eyewitnesses could not stop talking about what they had personally seen. Now, these factors meet the investigative history criteria to be considered credible and beyond doubt. Historians thus regard records of this creed among the most significant evidence for Jesus's resurrection. And on page 191, James Dunn from the University of Durham is quoted saying, as a historical statement, we can say quite firmly, no Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus. So the historical evidence stacks up. You and I would not be having this conversation today if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, just like he predicted. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, Jesus too was lifted up. Though his earthly temple, his body was destroyed, three days later, he raised it up again. It's why John wrote this about himself. The one who has accepted Jesus's testimony has affirmed that God is true. If you're taking notes, I want you to highlight, underline and circle those words, accepted and affirmed, accepted and affirmed. You can accept Jesus, the son of man from heaven above with dominion over even death. You can accept God's nature is spirit. And since his nature is spirit, if you and I are to better recognize the invisible king, if we are to eventually enter his kingdom, you and I must have God's spirit put within us so we can take on a new nature, a spirit nature. Jesus said it this way, whatever is born of flesh is flesh and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. So how might you and I be born of the spirit from above? What must we do to so much as perceive and eventually enter into the invisible king's kingdom? Jesus stated it simply, and don't miss this. He said, everyone, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You and I are born from above 
God puts his spirit within us when we believe, or as John said, accept and affirm. Now I know that can be hard to wrap our minds around because so often we're taught, and maybe you were taught that you have to first be baptized or you have to first take these classes and demonstrate a certain understanding or you have to pray these prayers and you must never stop practicing these religious rituals. But think about it. This simple, single requirement to believe is consistent with what God had already done to keep people alive. Remember the story. Think back just a few minutes ago, the story that Jesus referenced. What did the snake-bitten people have to do to stay alive? All they had to do to live was to look at the bronze serpent raised on a pole. That is, whether they had a lot of evidence and logically deduced that looking at a pole would keep them alive, or even if they had no evidence at all, and as crazy as it sounded, they decided to look at the pole anyway. To keep living, the people had to decide whether or not to accept and affirm what they'd been told. And the same is true for you and for me today to take on a spirit nature and to enter into God's eternal kingdom. You and I at some point will have to decide if we accept and affirm that Jesus's resurrection and ascension is true. And maybe what keeps you from believing isn't so much the possibility of a resurrection. Maybe it's that you just can't accept and affirm an angry, unjust, and condemning God. And if that's the case, pay special attention to what John and Jesus wanted you and me to better recognize. For God loved the world this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Listen, I don't know what you've been taught about God, but he isn't angry. He isn't hateful. He isn't condemning God's nature. And his preference is to give you and me life and life in its fullest possible capacity. John even said, he gives the spirit without measure. And then to finally punctuate his long train of thought, John recorded Jesus doing something so unthinkable. Jesus went out of his way to dignify someone on the opposite end of the social spectrum as Nicodemus. Jesus went out of his way to connect with someone of a race and gender whose life in that day did not matter. A Samaritan woman. John recorded this. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Yet Jesus said to this Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who is speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. He would give you his spirit. The gift of God's spirit put within you is absolutely free for everyone. And this brings us full circle to where John's uninterrupted thought started. Recall the prophecy we read out loud together. Zeal for your house will consume me. John wanted us to see that Jesus is consumed by a burning passion for the place where God's spirit resides. 
And because as John and Jesus have shown us, your body and my body is a house for God's spirit. This prophecy was never about Jesus's zeal for a physical building. This wasn't about a temple. This was about Jesus's zeal, his consuming zeal for you. This was about his zeal, his consuming zeal for me. And so whether you're accomplished and influential like Nicodemus, perhaps you're focused on earthly matters, or if you feel like the Samaritan woman, treat it as if your life doesn't matter and you're thirsting for something to refresh you, to revive you. Jesus is consumed with a passionate affection for you. He was consumed for you as the first creed reminds us that he allowed his body to be raised on a cross, his torso pierced with a spear from which blood and water poured out so that the water that is his spirit could cleanse our imperfect temples and create in us a suitable dwelling place for his perfect spirit. He was buried and he was raised on the third day and the same spirit that raised him to life is the same spirit he passionately wants to put in you and in me that you and I might perceive his presence and activity in our world and have a confidence that he is above all things, that you and I might live without fear and with peace, knowing that we will eventually enter his eternal kingdom, that this life is just the beginning, that you and I might experience life in the here and now in its fullest possible quality, life to the full. John wanted you and me to know that Jesus is zealously consumed, that you would receive his spirit because... The spirit is the one who gives life. So whether you're watching or listening, whenever you're watching or listening, if you've been feeling empty and unfulfilled, or even if life is going well and you just want your joy and your confidence to overflow right now, let's together invite the spirit who gives life. Let's invite the spirit to fill us, to make us new, and to help us experience life in its fullest capacity. Here's how we're gonna do that. As the worship team leads us in a song called The Creed, based on that collection of beliefs from the first century, I want you to allow these lyrics to wash over you and to fill you. Sing them as a declaration of what you believe. And even if you're not ready to believe, Jesus said the spirit will testify about me. And so you can just say, I don't yet believe, but help me recognize you're real. And so Holy Spirit, right now, would you help each of us better recognize your consuming love for us? Holy Spirit, would you refresh us? Would you revive us as we declare what we believe? I believe. 
Praising Corian's life Forever seated high I believe in God our Father I believe in Christ the Son I believe in the Holy Spirit Our God is three in one I believe in the resurrection That we Three. 
When you believe, you receive God's spirit. When you accept and affirm that Jesus has died for our sins, that he was raised to life and ascended into heaven, then God puts his spirit within you. You can then perceive and eventually enter into God's kingdom because you are then born from above with the spirit nature. And so if you have believed, would you just type in the comments, I believe. If you've believed, whether you've already believed and just reinforced it today, type in the comments, I believe. We want to know and we want to pray for you. Now, in just a few moments, I'm gonna send us off with a benediction. But before you go, as we always remind you, remember to do the three S's. Practice the three S's. First, share. If you know someone who would be encouraged by our conversation today, by the teaching and content today, share this message. Secondly, subscribe. Subscribe to City Tribe Media on YouTube or via Apple Podcasts. Stay connected with us so you can stay up to date on new teachings. And third, sow. Sow a seed into God's eternal kingdom by stewarding your resources and supporting this ministry so we can continue to get the message of Jesus out into the world so more and more people can be born from above and take on a spirit nature. How much better would our world be? Now, there are three ways to give. They're on the screen. Be sure to give and sow a seed in the kingdom of God. Now, brothers and sisters, as you go, may you be reminded that it is the spirit that gives life and live from this spirit nature that you might be revived and refreshed and you can bring this feeling into the world so we can make an impact in Jesus's name. God bless you guys. We're glad you were part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.